And for those of you who are guests with us, we have been walking through the book of Genesis for a while now. Our lead pastor, Paul, he is away for the weekend, and so it's my privilege to open up God's word for you this morning. And we find ourselves in Genesis 27, and this is, for many of us who grew up in the church, this is probably a, somewhat of a familiar text to us. Uh, and so my hope is that we will not just kind of look at the broad narrative, but really dig deeper into what's really going on in this story. And I think if I could summarize it, it would be this, that there is a lot of planning, a lot of scheming that's taking place in this narrative. And uh, if I were to think about it too, it's the, the fact that there's a lot of plans that we all put into practice, right? We have plans to get into college. We have plans to start a career. We have plans to get married, plans to to raise a family, we have plans to retire, plans to maybe go on vacation next week for spring break. There's all different types of plans, and these all reflect what we want. But they also reflect our commitment and our character and how far we are willing to go to achieve them. And it got me thinking about some other plans uh, from Mission Impossible. Anybody like Mission Impossible? I was sick last week, and so I got to watch a couple of Mission Impossible movies. And I love Ethan Hunt because he always has a plan. And I remember in one of the movies I was watching, I mean, he just said, I just don't see any other way. And so he's going to kidnap the prime minister and do all the craziness that he does. And I love Ethan Hunt because even the craziest of plans, like he still has faith that he's going to accomplish it. And we kind of see the craziness of this planning, the scheming that's going on in this passage of Scripture as it relates to planning to get and to give the Father's blessing. And the reality is everyone wants your dad's blessing, right? Um, Our daughter, Ruth Ann, she just turned nine this past week, and so we're kind of going around the table, and we kind of do this thing where we, we, in essence, we sort of bless uh, whoever the birthday person is and affirm their character and talk about what we'd appreciate about them. And one of the themes was her strength and her bravery, her fearlessness. And I was thinking back on the fact that when she was a toddler, she would do all these feats of strength and feats of bravery. And like any other toddler, what do you do when you're finished? You turn your head and you look back to see if daddy or mommy is watching. You want those words of affirmation. Good job. You punched a hole in the wall. No, it wasn't like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's the desire that we have. We're wired for the Father's blessing. And here in this passage, the word blessing is mentioned 22 times, Barak, in the, the Hebrew. But as we've been learning, this blessing is more than just personal. It's not just passing down your love, the love of the Father to the next generation. There's more to it than that. This blessing accompanies the birthright. And back in that culture, the birthright was to be given to the firstborn son. In this case, Esau. And he was, he was to receive this blessing that would be patriarchal. And what I mean by that is the firstborn son was to lead and to represent the family once the dad passed away. It was not only patriarchal, it was also financial that the firstborn son would get the the double portion of everything that the father owned. It was also geographical because in that agrarian society, you would rule a land. You would remember last week, we learned about all this well drilling, that, well, well drilling that was going on, this well building that was taking place because you needed a land in order to have animals, in order to have servants, in order to be able to establish roots in the community for many generations to come. But in our story... It's more than just geographical or personal or financial. There is a spiritual blessing that's going on. If you remember way back to Genesis chapter 12 with the promise to Abraham where he said, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There was to be this spiritual blessing that would come about through his seed, through his descendant. 
And uh, the last thing that I want us to see here just real briefly, in fact, a quote from John Calvin that expresses what's going on in this passage of Scripture, is the spiritual blessing, it's also sort of a prophetic blessing. And so let me read to you what John Calvin says as what's going on here and what was taking place when Abraham blessed Isaac uh, a while ago. So he says, The patriarchs went at the point of death in order that the succession might be secured to their posterity, to their seed. Put them in possession as if they would deliver from hand to hand the favor which they had received from God. And so what's happening here is there's, there's almost this passing down through the laying on of hands, the blessing of God to the next generation. And so you can see that this blessing is a really big deal. The Father's blessing is very important. And so that's why we see all this planning, all this scheming. Everyone in this story wants the blessing. They all have a plan, a personal plan to get the blessing. And so there's really not just one plan or two plans. There's four plans, four different people, all scheming, all planning to be able to get or to give the blessing. And I wish I could say that this planning was being done by God-honoring, humble, servant-hearted sort of people, but they are not, right? They are self-centered, they're me-centric, and it clouds their judgment. It creates division and dysfunction in the family, and it leads to great pain and suffering, not only in this chapter, but in the many chapters to follow. And I wish I could say that I can't identify with these characters, but... I can. In my flesh, I can be just as foolish, just as committed, just as self-serving, just as deceitful as Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. But the good thing is, as we're going to see in this passage of Scripture, the plans of man are not the final word. No, it's the plan of God. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, But the Lord establishes his steps. And so it's an amazing thing that when it comes to the blessing of God, their plan is not the ultimate plan. And that's the same thing for us. We're going to see in these plans and in these events that take place, they don't surprise God. They don't, don't, oh, wait, oh, I didn't expect this to happen. Now I'm going to have to scheme and work it out myself. No, that's not what God does. He takes our sin. He takes our selfishness. It's an amazing display that he is able to still accomplish his ultimate plan of bringing blessing to the world. And that should give us great hope as we examine these plans this morning. That despite all of our scheming and despite all of our planning, that the unmistakable, unimaginable, unforgettable, unstoppable, irrevocable grace of God is still displayed in their lives and in our lives as well. And so today's sermon title is The Father's Blessing, and we've got two points um, to understand this passage of Scripture. The first one is this, the plans of man. So we're going to look at four plans, and we can include a woman in there too, right? So there's the Rebecca's plan, and there's these three other men's plans to try to get the blessing. And then we're going to see the plan of God. So the plans of man and the plan of God to get and to receive this blessing. But before we, we jump into the text, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning that you have wired us for blessing. You have wired us for your blessing. 
And yet at the same time, if we're honest, we so scheme, we so uh, get on detours, we get derailed a lot of times because of our own sin, because of our selfishness, and yet we thank you that we do not have the last word, you do. And so as we dig into the text this morning, would you help us to see our lives in the lives of these four people? And also, would you help us to see that you reign supreme? that no plan of man can stop the plan of God. So we entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first we're going to look at the plans of man. We're going to look at all four of these plans. And first we're going to start out with Isaac. So verses 1 through 4, we're introduced to Isaac here. Um, At this point, Isaac is very old. He's estimated to probably be around 140 years old. It says his eyes are dim in verse 1, and later on we see that really all of his physical senses are failing him. His taste, his touch, his hearing, his smell. He's trying to figure things out, and as he's getting ever closer to death, he wants to speak a deathbed sort of blessing upon his son. And so Isaac calls his firstborn son Esau next to him, And he asks him to go out and kill some game and to prepare a special meal for him so that he might bless his son. And of course, to the average person, to somebody who would know the the text, they would think, oh yeah, he's blessing his firstborn son. Of course, that makes sense. But as we know, there's something more that's going on. If you will notice right off the bat, he calls Esau in in private to speak with him. Rather than a big public celebration that would normally happen when you are blessing your firstborn son, he calls Esau into private. He is trying to give the blessing behind closed doors in secret. And why? Well, we know already what God has said to Rebecca. Remember when Rebecca is pregnant with the two boys, God speaks to Rebecca and says, the older will serve the younger. And Isaac certainly knows this plan of God. They've already seen Esau foolishly wander away from God. We didn't look at this last week, but at the end of chapter 26, it says that Esau marries two Hittite women. He's just constantly running away from his parents. And it says that, they, that he made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. And yet... Isaac wants to bless Esau. What's going on here? And remember, this is the man Esau, who when he was a younger man, offered himself up on an altar to be sacrificed to God. And God spared Isaac by putting a ram in the thicket. God honored both Abraham's faith and Isaac's faith to trust in God. Later on, last week, what did we see with Isaac? Instead of going to Egypt, which was the normal path whenever there's a famine, God says, no, Isaac, I want you to stay planted in this community. I want you to bless those around you. I want you to seek blessing. I want you to trust in me. And Isaac trusted in God. So what's going on here? Well, it seems that it's not just Isaac's physical senses that are abandoning him, but it's his spiritual senses too. See, he's much older now. And we see over and over again, if you were to go back and you were to look, it says that he loves to eat. Anybody love to eat? Yes, we love to eat, right? But he wants physical food so much that he's willing to put aside the spiritual food of following after God, of obeying his command to bless the younger son. Derek Kidner says, his palate had long since governed his heart and silenced his tongue. 
If you were to go back to um, Genesis 25, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. So this wasn't a one-time thing. Over and over again, it seems that Esau would, would kill the hunt, and then he would bless his dad with a good meal. And over time, Isaac more and more and more loved his firstborn son. And he withheld his love from his younger son. See, Isaac chooses what is natural, not what is spiritual. It's as if Isaac has chosen to kind of coast to the finish line. He's forgotten what it means to trust in the Lord. He's not actively pursuing the mission of God that Pastor Paul talked about last week. Instead of blessing his community and blessing his family, he's now choosing the comforts of this life, physical food and all of the comforts of this life, and he's moving more and more towards passivity. The comforts of this life are dulling his affections for God. They're lulling his affections for God to sleep. Can you relate? Tempted towards comfort, towards passivity, to choose what you want rather than what God wants. The lures of this world get to so easily draw us away from God and kind of clamp down on our hearts and keep us from pursuing the mission of God. I was thinking about this um, when I was uh, in college, uh, in, I think it was in the summer of 2000. It was the first passion conference ever. It was actually passion one day. It took place in a a muddy field in Tennessee. And a bunch of us college students went up there to to hear some speakers. And John Piper was there. And he said to this mostly college students, he said, guys, don't waste your life. Don't make your aim to retire and to pick up seashells on the seashore the rest of your lives. And I was like, I'm not not even close to retirement. What are you talking about, you know? But as I think about it more, what what is the whole American dream? It's to move toward retirement and to just chill out, just to relax. And the reality is all of our lives, not just when we're 60 or 70 or 80, all of our lives, we are tempted to move towards comfort and passivity rather than actively pursuing the mission of God. I want to encourage you, though, uh, that is not so among our church family. I was thinking about this related to our re-engage ministry. We launched this marriage ministry about a year ago. Uh, almost all of our mentor couples are retired couples. They have not said, oh, I'm going to just pick up seashells on the seashore. Not that that's bad. Um, but, they, but they want to invest. They want to reproduce themselves to pass on what they've learned to the next generation to be active rather than passive. And that's a call for all of us to not move towards the plan of Isaac, but instead to move towards the plan of God. So that's Isaac's plan. What about Rebecca's plan? Well, if you look at verses 5 through 13, we see Rebecca's plan unfold. She's a very different sort of personality than Isaac. You know, Isaac is moving towards passivity, and Rebecca is always on hyperdrive. She is always working. She's always strong. She's always energetic. And in many ways, that's been a good thing for her. If you remember back to when we first were introduced to Rebecca, she's a single woman. She's at the well, and she spends like all day long watering the camels to demonstrate this hardworking, servant-hearted sort of attitude. And then right after that, after this servant says, hey, I want you to marry Isaac. After just a couple of hours of meeting the servant, she says, yes, I'll go. I'll go tomorrow. 
apart from even meeting this man. I am trusting in the plan of God. But fast forward many years, that sense of hyperactivity now has sort of constrained her, where when as soon as she sees the plan of God, maybe not going according to her plans, she wants to control. She wants to deceive her husband in order to get what she wants for her son. All right, Jacob, hurry, get a couple of ghosts. You know, uh, I'll cook them, um, and then we're going to take the animal skins, we're going to put it on your skin and on your neck, and we're going to trick your dad. He won't even know the difference. I'm sure Jacob at first is like, Mom, are you crazy? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? But what's going on in Rebecca's hearts here? She has a just cause. Remember, she was the one who audibly heard the voice of God saying, the older will serve the younger. And so she's, she, in, her, in her mind, in her heart, she knows that it's Jacob who's to receive the blessing. But here, as soon as she hears Isaac's plan, she doesn't bring this to the Lord. She doesn't act out in faith and say, God, what are you up to? How can, how can I be a part of your plan to bless the younger son, Jacob. No, her response is, Lord, I can fix this. I can control this. Let me just handle this. And then when Jacob asks her, hey, are you sure this is a good plan? What if we get caught? She says, hey, trust in me, Jacob. My plan's going to work. And if it doesn't work, let your curse be upon me. In other words, it's all up to me. And I'm going to reap the consequences, whatever they may be. Can you relate to that? That sense of hyperactivity, that sense of stress, that sense of anxiety, like you've got to control everything? I sure can. As I was thinking about Rebecca, I couldn't help but see my heart in her heart. I was going back through my journal recently, and one of the things that I I do um, is I write the state of my heart before I open up God's word. And I was going back through, like, what do I write down with the state of my heart over and over again? I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm fearful. I I don't have control. Well, that's Rebecca. She is the helicopter mom. Remember, like her son is probably around 40 years old, and yet she's still hovering. She's still trying to control. She's always circling, never giving space for God to work. And for Rebecca and for many of us, our anxiety points to something much deeper that's going on in our hearts. It's not just that problem out there that I've got to fix No, there's really a problem in here that I can't fix. It's got to be God who changes my heart. And the issue is, do I trust in the sovereign plan of God? Am I willing to entrust my life and the life of my kids to his control? I was listening to a story of a, of a mom whose, whose children were walking away from the faith, and she just really wrestled with this. She was really struggling with this. And she finally came to the conclusion after a lot of fretting, a lot of trying to control and it not working it, leading her kids farther and farther away from the Lord. She finally concluded with this. She said, God has to write my children's testimony, not me. And the reality is God also needs to write our testimony as well. But when we try to be in control, we write God out of our testimony. We don't allow him to work. We don't allow him to bring his plan to fruition in our lives. What are you trying to control this morning? What are you trying to to grab a hold of rather than to release and entrust the Lord? 
my encouragement is don't follow the plan of Rebecca. Follow the plan of God. Entrust your life and your plans to him. Well, what about Jacob's plan? In verses 14 and following, we see Jacob carrying out his mother's plan to defraud his father and to gain his brother's blessing. And it is not a pretty sight. Um, Jacob comes out of his mother's womb, right? He comes out plotting, scheming, grabbing hold of his brother's heel, always trying to, to deceive and get his own way. And this has been his MO since the very beginning. And here he's implementing his plan. Think about this. Um, he's trying to deceive his dad while his dad is on his deathbed. And when his mom shares this plan, Jacob hesitates. But it's not because he's thinking about, oh, maybe it's immoral to lie to my dad and to deceive my brother. No. He's concerned that he may get caught. And that he might receive a curse rather than a blessing. But as soon as his mom says, hey, no, Jacob, if we do get caught, if your dad realizes that you look really crazy dressed up like a goat, I'm going to take your curse. And so as soon as Jacob hears this, he's willing to carry out his plan. As soon as he realizes that he won't suffer the consequences, or at least he thinks he won't suffer the consequences, he carries out his deception. John Calvin says, at first Jacob was timid and anxious. Now, having dismissed his fear, he confidently and audaciously lies. And what's going on in Jacob's heart? Now, for Jacob, he is so consumed with his father's blessing that it clouds his judgment. He has made the blessing his all-consuming passion. And so when he's before his dad and he's asked time and time again, is it really you, Esau? Jacob lies. Yeah, dad, it's me. Yeah, it's, your, it's Esau, your firstborn son. And when he's asked, how did you get the food so quickly? That's amazing. It's interesting what he says. Verse 20, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. See, he is far away from God. And he invokes the name of God, though, to try to get what he wants. And this is what happens when deceit begins as a way of life, our lives begin to spiral out of control. And Satan lies to us all the time, doesn't he? He is the father of lies. And he says, hey, this plan is going to work. This plan is worth it. Just hide a little more. Just, just deceive a little longer. Just say a few more lies and it'll all work out in the end. He's like the fairy godmother, right? That presents us with this beautiful ball. And we're enjoying sin for a while. Not to say that the Disney princesses were enjoying sin, okay? But, um, but at the end, right? The carriage turns into a pumpkin. And everything just comes crashing down when the, the, the clock strikes midnight. And that's what happens when we live a life in a pattern of deception. Our sin finally becomes clear. Our sin costs. Our sin hurts. Our sin destroys. But I want to, before we beat up Jacob too much, I want you to imagine the exchange here between him and his dad. See, I want you to think about this. Jacob has been longing for his dad's blessing since the very beginning. He has wanted the affection of his dad, Isaac, for as long as he can remember, but he can't get it. It's interesting. Over and over again, Isaac says, my son, but it's not meant to be blessing, blessing to, Esau, excuse me, to Isaac. It's to be meant as a blessing to Esau. 
Esau is the favorite. Esau is the one that Isaac loves. And so it's really sad here, but Jacob is even willing to pretend to be Esau to get the father's blessing. Verse 24 and following, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So Jacob brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and he blessed him. And you can just imagine like Jacob is longing for the affections of his dad. And he's willing even to pretend to be somebody else to get that love, to get that kiss, to get that smell, to get that approval. Can you relate? To pretend to be someone else in order to be loved, to perform in order to get praised, to hide the real you because of shame and guilt or feeling unaccepted. We're about to launch another round of redemption groups. Um, By the way, we've got a few more spots left. Not many, but a few. And so if you're interested, we'd love to have you. But one of the common themes when we talk about how does the gospel apply to your life, we call them daddy issues. Over and over again, there is this theme of men and women desiring the approval of their earthly father. And their father abandons them or their father ignores them or their father withholds from them his love until they perform a certain way. Can I just tell you, men, dads, bless your kids. Love your kids. Love all your kids and don't have any favorites. And don't withhold your love until you get a proper performance. Just love them because you love them because you love them. Men, bless your kids so they don't have daddy issues when they grow up. But thankfully, God is not finished with Jacob yet. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jacob will realize that it's not actually his earthly father's blessing that he really needs. But it's ultimately God himself who will truly fill the hole that is in his heart. But for now, just know that Jacob's plan, it is going to go awry. What about Esau's plan? Just as his dad, Isaac, began to follow after the comforts of this life, that's always been Esau's plan. He follows his passions to the max. Esau's strong, he's rough, he's a man of the field, he goes out and hunts, he leaves for weeks at a time. That's what this narrative is all about, but he is also foolish, he's driven by unbridled passions. Remember Esau, he despised his birthright, he sold it for a pot of stew, he regarded it as nothing. Later at the end of chapter 26 that we we read last week, he marries not just one woman, but two women. And we're going to see that, that that's not enough for him. Next week, we're going to see that he marries another woman. His life is just untamed. It's unrestrained. It's an act now, think later sort of mentality. He's consumed by his passion and his pleasures. If it feels good, do it. If it feels better, do it some more. More is always better for Esau. He is a wild man who is wild about everything except for God. And so he heads off to do what he always does. 
He goes out and hunts. He goes out and conquers. Then he wants to get his daddy's blessing and enjoy the spoil of a good meal. But when Esau comes home this time, the life that he's been living, it finally comes to be exposed. It comes crashing down. He arrives with this game and he brings it before his dad, expecting the blessing. But as we can see, starting in verse 32, I'll read it to you really quick. This exchange between Esau and his dad, it says, Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for his servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And here's what's interesting. When Esau weeps here, it's not a weeping of, oh God, I am sorry for my sin. I've been exposed. I take responsibility for all the ways that I've walked away from you. No. When his foundation is exposed, he becomes even more bitter and even more rebellious rather than broken and repentant. Instead of confessing his part of the plan, no, he blames everything on his brother. And as we read a little bit later, it says that once, he says, once my dad dies, I will kill my brother. See, he doesn't want spiritual blessing from his dad. He only wants the worldly blessing. He only wants more riches. He only wants more fame. He only wants more prosperity in this life. He only wants more wives. He doesn't want the blessing of God. If you can relate to Esau, let me encourage you. Don't run away from the plan of God. Esau, right after this, he runs away from God even more so. There is a warning in Hebrews chapter 12 for any of us when we're tempted to go the way of Esau. Let me read it to you. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent." Or we could say he found no opportunity to repent. Or we could say he didn't want to repent, though he sought it with tears. He didn't want the blessing of God. He just wanted that worldly inheritance that leads to death. It's a very sad warning to us if we're following the plan of Esau to repent. Let today be the day that you turn from sin. Let today be the day that you trust in Jesus, that you follow A story like Annie's who says, I want to follow after Jesus now, not after my own ways. Well, here's the good thing, though. These plans of man, 
Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, these are not plans that are ultimate. No. The plan of God is ultimate. We want to take a a wider lens now and just look at the fact that in light of these smaller stories, there is a larger story of God that is being displayed. Not only in this passage of Scripture, but really we can look back on this passage of Scripture and we can say, yeah, this has always been the plan of God. And I just want to talk to you about a few characteristics of the plan of God that are found in this passage of Scripture. And the first thing is this. The plan of God is full of grace. I mean, grace is all over this text. And we might be tempted to say, well, Esau, I feel sorry for him. You know, he doesn't get the blessing. But the reality is none of these people, right, deserve the blessing. I mean, we read the story and we say, well, man, God seems totally unfair. He's blessing Jacob. And God would say, yeah, that's right. It is completely unfair. In fact, none of my grace is deserved. God would respond back to us, how could could any of you think that you deserve my grace? No, it's all of grace. And we see that God's grace is displayed in how he chooses. The line of the Messiah passes through passive Isaac. It passes through fretting Rebekah. It passes through deceiving Jacob. Tim Keller says this, God brings his scandalous grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Oh, that's good news. If you find yourself in the lives of Isaac or Rebekah or Jacob or Esau, you can say, no, but the grace of God is greater, not my sin. And the good thing is that God is not just sovereign over our best deeds, right? I mean, he's sovereign over the darkest, most immoral, most selfish, most awful things that we do in the darkness, And somehow he supernaturally uses it all to accomplish his amazing purposes. He chooses the lesser to shame the greater. He chooses the lowly to shame the proud. He chooses the the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the younger to shame the older. That's the way God's plan always is. It is a plan full of grace. And so don't think that you are ever too far from the reach of God's grace. No. God's grace is for you. And it's not just demonstrated in how he chooses. It's also demonstrated in how he blesses. Just real briefly, if you look at this blessing that that Isaac speaks over Jacob, this blessing foreshadows the blessing that's afforded to all those who are In Christ, there's a a blessing of prosperity. He talks about this fatness of the fields that we will enjoy forever and ever and ever when we have a home in heaven. There's a blessing of dominion. It talks about how there will be a rule that will be established, a kingdom that can never be destroyed, that we will be able to enjoy and reign with Christ forever and ever. There's a blessing of the nations. It says that the nations will will bless Isaac and ultimately we will recognize that our business bless Jacob and ultimately see that the blessing of the nations is to be enjoyed by all of us. We are a fulfillment of that blessing of the nations that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will enjoy the grace of God. So the plan of God is demonstrated the fullness of God's grace. See that for you and for me. 
Not only that, but the plan of God is to be received by faith. Hebrews 11 says, uh, about this passage of scripture, it says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now I was trying to figure out, like, where is the faith of Isaac in this passage? Because it seems like in his fleshiness, right, in his, in his affections for Esau, he doesn't seem to demonstrate any sort of faith. But there is a shift that happens in Isaac. And I want us to look back real briefly to see his faith activated, his faith sort of becoming aware of what God is up to. When he realizes that he has blessed the younger son, verse 33 says, Then Isaac trembled very violently. And then he says to Esau, I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. In other words, Isaac says, I have been fighting against God for far too long, and now I accept defeat. Isaiah 66 says, This is the man after my heart to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaac trembled when he realized how far away he had moved from the plan of God. And here he relents. Here he entrusts. Here he believes in the plan of God. He finally got it. God is a God of utter grace, and even though Jacob is a twister, even though he's a schemer, even though he's a crook, even though he's a thief, God still comes and says, I'm going to bless Jacob That is my plan, Isaac. Trust in me. Stop wrestling with me. Stop striving. Stop trying on your own. Instead, relent and entrust yourself to me. Now, I wish you could say the plan of God when we trust in God is everything's great after that. No, there's still consequences for sin. Isaac and Rebekah, in trying to control the situation... They end up losing more and more control of everything around them. And trying to preserve their son, their favorite son, they end up losing both of their sons. Esau continues to cause strife and to to pursue his own passions. Jacob has to leave home. And from what we can tell, Rebecca actually never sees her quote-unquote favorite son again. Jacob, when he's trying to scheme, he ends up being sent to a foreign land to run away from his brother. He's away from his father's house. He can't rule over his father's house He's where he's supposed to lead. He becomes completely poor and bankrupt. He ends up having to run away for some 20-odd years to try to earn his favor. But of course, as we know, we can't earn God's favor, right? And he'll learn that too. But here's the good news. For those who are in Christ... These consequences for sin, yes, there are some, but they are not meant to punish us. They are instead meant to instruct us and to draw us back to the grace of God. To say, God, I can't do it on my own. I'm entrusting my life to you. I want you to reign supreme. You see, our sin does not have the last word The cross of Jesus Christ has the last word. And that's what we want to see last but not least. This plan of God is not only to be full of grace, 
As we see, it's not only to be received by faith, but it also this plan of God points to the ultimate plan of God, which is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about this, you know, when Jesus rises from the dead, he speaks to his disciples and he said, all scripture is meant to point to me. And it says that he opened up the scriptures and talks about how everything points to him. And I wonder if he got to this story and a smile sort of popped on his face and like, oh, let me tell you about this one. You see, on the outside, this story is really dark, but then the light of the gospel really begins to shine as we look at it. See, Jesus is actually all over this text. Jesus is the firstborn son who deserves all of the Father's blessing, but he willingly gives up this blessing, not for the price of stew, but for the price of his own life, he gives up this blessing. See, Jesus is also Jacob. He's the one who puts on the clothes of another in order to acquire the blessing. He wore the purple robes. He wore the crown of thorns. And he wore our clothes, our our naked clothes of shame and sin upon himself. He wore the shame of your nakedness and mine, but not in a deceptive way, not to hide his identity, but instead to reveal his identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is also the true Rebecca who says to us, I will take your curse upon me so that you will have the firstborn blessing. I will give to you my robes of righteousness. If there's any punishment that must be paid, I will pay the price. And Jesus is Isaac, who trusts in the plan of God, who says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he certainly wrestled with his father. Is there any other way? And then Jesus says, no. There is no other way. I trust in your plan, Father, to the very end. I will drink every last drop of the cup of suffering so that the children of God can be blessed. See, Four Oaks, this plan of God is full of grace for us, and it's to be received by faith alone in Christ alone. Everyone comes to the cross on their Knees, so that no one may boast. We all are putting ourselves under the banner of Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who brings about the blessing of God. We sell our birthright every day, don't we? Every day we give in to sinful, fleshly desires. Every day we scheme. Every day we deceive. Every day we move towards passivity rather than activity. Every day we also try to control things rather than to release control to the Lord. And yet God says, the blessing of the Father is for you. Just put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. See, the blessing of the Father is not only for Jesus Christ, it's for all those who are in Christ. And just as Jesus heard the blessing of his Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, so for all those who are trusting in Jesus, we hear that same blessing spoken over us. You are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he has clothed us in his perfect righteousness that he is the firstborn over all creation. 
and that he welcomes us in as the firstborn as well to receive all the blessings that he receives, the blessing of approval, the blessing of an inheritance, the blessing of eternity with God forever and ever and ever and ever. Let me read to you a a quick quote from Scott Sauls in his book, From Weakness to Strength. He says, The love of God, when taken hold of, frees us from any need to be noticed, to make a name for ourselves, to find significance through achievement or advancement, or from leading or influencing others. We already have these benedictions and blessings and an infinite supply from the Father who is not blind to our value, but who sees us and loves us just the same. Folks, wherever you might find yourself in this story, know that your plan does not have the last word. No, the last word comes from God himself, from his ultimate plan to display the fullness of his grace upon his kids. The affections of his father, the nearness of our father, the caresses of our father, the hugs of our father that says, I love you. I'm pleased with you. And we get to enjoy that both now and forevermore. So may we receive that blessing in faith this morning. Let's pray. You may have been here last week and we were able to celebrate a baptism. In fact, two baptisms last week. And I'm just really thankful to God to be able to say to you we have another baptism as well this week to celebrate together as a church family. If this is your first time with us, uh, maybe, or maybe this is something you've never witnessed before, uh, a baptism, an immersion baptism, uh, here at Forks we, we practice immersion baptism, we practice believer baptism. And just so you understand what you're about to witness, this is something that... Uh, that, we've, that we believe that, that the word calls us to. Jesus Christ himself commands this of his believers. Jesus Christ himself even was baptized. So as you witness this baptism today, this is someone who is following Christ and his example. But the other thing that we are going to witness is a symbol. Uh, this, what takes place today, is this is not what saves you. What saves us is a, a faith In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith joins us to the accomplished work of Christ himself on the cross. And because of that, our faith assures us of eternal life with God. But as I said last week, that journey of faith has a story to it. And that journey is is filled with very specific things to the individual. And so this is what we also are able to hear. We are able to hear the story of God in, in a person's life, of how he has redeemed them. And today we have uh, Annie Kniff being baptized. I'd like to invite her up along with her husband, Josh. And before Annie is baptized, she would like to tell her story of what God has done in her life. Hello. <clears throat> I was raised in the Catholic Church where we went almost every Sunday and also attended Catholic school from kindergarten to fifth grade. I knew who God was, but I didn't know what he was capable of, and I certainly didn't know that he wanted a relationship with me. Once I hit sixth grade, we moved and stopped private school and going to church altogether. We were just too busy. I had no relationship with God at all and no desire to pursue one. After all, I had completed almost all of my holy sacraments, So I pretty much had the golden ticket to heaven in my hand anyway. Growing up, I never thought very highly of Christians. 
from what I could see on the outside, they were people who just went to church on Sundays, and then as soon as they leave, they go back to being their normal judgmental selves. I thought Christians were supposed to be perfect. Man, was I wrong or what? We are nothing without Christ. In 2015, I met my now husband, Josh. He grew up going to Four Oaks, but had drifted away from the church. It was his Uncle John and Aunt Vicki who had tried to encourage us time and time again to begin attending. We started attending very infrequently, but over time began to drift away again. Between children and Josh's job, it seemed like there was always a good excuse. January 2019, we got an autism diagnosis for our daughter, Kennedy. It was a huge adjustment period for us. I knew she was having a hard time with the world around her. All I could think is, life is not fair. I was added to our church's special needs group on Facebook, where a book was, a book was shared called It's Not Fair by Melanie Dale. A, I bought the book and started to learn about things from a different perspective. It was not, what can God do for me, but what can I do to serve God? The Saturday night following last Easter, I was scrolling on Facebook, and I came across a video of Tim Tebow. It was wonderful. And as a girl who grew up in a gator-hater household, <laughs> I never thought I'd be so thankful for Tim Tebow directing me, in the path, directing me towards the path I needed to go. He spoke about the championship game that he had John 316 in his eye black. As a result, some 94 million people Googled that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It led me down a rabbit hole of internet searches. At that time, I didn't know what compelled me to do so, but looking back, it was clearly God at work. When the night ended, I thought to myself, where can I hear more like this? Then it dawned on me, tomorrow was Sunday. So I went out to the living room and I told Josh that I was going to church the next day and that I'd love for him to join me if he was in the mood. Of course, he happily joined. I was so extremely interested in the service, and, it was, and when it was time for the communion, Pastor Scott served it to me. I still remember it perfectly to this day. When I got up to him, he smiled at me so big, and he said, Annie, Jesus died for you, and he loves you. And I never felt more sure of anything before in my life. Jesus is my Savior. He did die for me, and he does, in fact, love me. I was, and still am, excited about my new faith and relationship with the Lord. I love going to church, I love listening to the sermon, and I love being as involved as I possibly can. I've learned that I'm a sinner, I'm married to a sinner, and my friends and family are all sinners. But God loves each and every one of us. How exciting is that? After months of trying to coordinate it, I'm finally getting baptized today, and I'm so grateful and excited to profess my faith in the Lord with y'all today. Thank you. Amen. Any, Pastor Scott. Go ahead and get up. Yeah. It's a joy to be able to, uh, for Rob and I both, to be able to baptize you, Annie, and it's definitely been a, a joy for Julia and I to be a part of your journey. Um, they were a part of our reengage small group this past fall. And uh, I want to also thank John and Vicki for your persistent love of Josh and Annie and uh, your pursuit of them and how it's a, an amazing dis display of the fact that God really does love you, Annie. And so I uh, would love to, uh, as you're freezing cold right here, um, ask you two quick questions before you're baptized. First, 
Um, are you trusting in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized today? To follow Jesus. Amen. Well, Annie, it's our joy and our privilege, based upon this profession of faith, to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.